You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, then please share our episodes on social media, like our Facebook page, or just tell a friend about us. But if you really like what you hear, why not vote for us in the British Podcast Awards? Just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote, search for Polling Matters, that's the one with the graph, and give us your vote in the Listener's Choice Awards. It takes 30 seconds, and shortlisted podcasts will feature on the Guardian website. So you'd really be helping us out, and really be helping us to grow our audience too. So it would be very much appreciated. But for now, thanks for listening, and on with this week's show. Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. It's March the 8th, 2017, and my name is Kieran Pedley. Well, this week's show is split into two parts. In part one, I'll be speaking to Mick Filty of Slugger O'Toole to get the latest news following last week's assembly elections in Northern Ireland. What do the results tell us about the situation there and what happens next? Later on in the show, I'll be talking budget reaction and recent Labour leadership polling from YouGov with Lawrence Yanta Lipinski and Emma Bean. Now, Lawrence is formerly of YouGov, so knows a bit or two about these kinds of polls and is now a freelance political consultant. And Emma is a staff writer at Labour List, so very much in tune with what's going on in the Labour Party. So more from both of them later. But first, my chat with Mick Filty. Now, I promised Mick a 10-minute interview, but we went, we went much longer than that. So I've split our chat into two parts. So this week, you will hear from us talking about the recent election results, what's behind them, who did well, who did badly, and what happens now. Next week, we'll be talking about Northern Ireland's future in more general terms, uh, given Brexit and you know, what that means for the peace process and the, the constitutional situation there and so on and so forth. So we're going to split it into two parts. Um, and first, for this week's episode, is part one, um, where I started by asking Mick what we needed to know about events last week. So I'm here with Mick Filty, who's an editor of the Slugger O'Toole blog and analyst on Northern Irish politics. Mick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. So um, let's talk about the Assembly elections last week. I mean, what do you think listeners need to know about and uh, what, what struck you from the results? Well, first thing they need to know is that this election took place um, after the last government broke down after just seven months. Now, that's a first since the restart of the Stormont institutions back in 2007, when the new Labour government spent a lot of political capital resurrecting it from the previous hiatus. So I think we need to know that, in a sense, this is more serious than the the average run-of-the-mill election. It was a snap election. It was called after the two major parties. For the first time, only two parties inside the government. That's, That's also important to know. And for the first time, that government had an opposition. But it only lasted seven months in power. The Assembly itself only sat for about three months. uh, And when it came to the first serious um, vote of no confidence, uh, it didn't fall at that point. But it put so much pressure on that the two main parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, who had been together, um, literally fell out uh, like thieves in the night. And um, Sinn Féin really did a flanker on the DUP, pulled the snap election, and they've been rewarded very substantially at the polls for doing so. So I'm looking at some of the uh, vote shares, or at least the changes in vote shares. So you're right, Sinn Féin, uh, plus 3.9% uh, up, I think, their uh, their vote share. The Alliance Party also seemed to be um, a big winner on the night. But let's talk about Sinn Féin first. I mean, where does their 
obviously their vote comes from the Republican community, but where did their increase in their vote come from? Because presumably well, it's not coming well, from unionists. That's the really interesting thing, because the only polls that were done beforehand was a kind of was lucid talks kind of poll. And what that seemed to show was that uh, the DUP were falling back by about 3%. It did not predict this rise, uh, and certainly not a rise of this proportion uh, for Sinn Féin. That's a 4% rise in their vote. Quite simply, um, this is a vote of outrage and fury uh, at the manner in which the First Minister, leader of the DUP, Arlene Foster, conducted herself in public at the breakdown of the, uh, the, the last executive and throughout the, um, uh, and throughout the campaign. Now, most of that outrage is to do with the tribal nature of politics in Northern Ireland. We don't have anything like uh, a normal political base. It's not as though, you know, in, in, in England, say, you know, we're, we're tracking polls, we're looking at how far Labour is falling, falling behind under Corbyn and wondering, can it fall any further? But there's always a, a possibility of redemption in the sense that, you, you know, he can pull back by five, six, ten, you know, uh, many, many points. In Northern Ireland, it's like trench warfare. Just imagine a peaceable Western front where, where the shift in the lines for the last 10 years has been a matter of yards or tens of yards, not miles. This isn't miles, but it's certainly kilometres, um, um, you know, a few kilometres further than anybody ever uh, anticipated. I didn't think they were going to go that far, but what they've managed to do is to put in a get-out-the-vote operation, which is second to none on these islands. No stone was unturned, and if you've ever seen a Sinn Féin get-the-vote-out get operation, it is a thing to behold. It's uh, loudspeakers down the, down the road, uh, activists tapping on almost every street simultaneously, finding out whether people have been to the polling station, and if they haven't, finding out when they plan to go to the polling station. It, it, there is, there's, not an, there's not another operation, I think, in the world as complete and powerful as that. So really, they're getting their votes from, from essentially Catholic non-voters then. Is that where that Catholic increase is going? Yeah. Right. One of the things they managed to do was to blunt the edge of a, a potential insurgency from the left, from a party called People Before Profit, which is effectively the socialist or the socialist workers uh, element. Um, and they were doing very well in West Belfast in particular. Um, and looking like the, the, there was a bit of a challenge there, they, they didn't get rid of that MLA in West Belfast, but they got rid of veteran Eamon McCann up in Derry. Uh, uh, and so they were very effective in a sense of, of snuffing out um, all, uh, all, all opposition, but, uh, but for the SDLP, the old uh, John Hume party, which which did far better than most people, including myself, expected. Mm. And this is for the benefit of listeners, recap some of the party vote share. So the DUP and Sinn Féin virtually neck and neck. I mean, the DUP, a few thousand votes, was it, ahead, I think, in the end. Um, okay. the, the, so they're on 28% essentially each, but the DUP slightly ahead. UUP, uh, let's call it 13%, SDLP 12%, I'm rounding up here, uh, the Alliance Party on 9 and then others on 10 so it gives the listeners a, a bit of a sense of uh, where, where each of the parties stand. Um, I want to come on to the unionists, which feels like the big story of the night. But before we do, the Alliance Party seem to have quite a good night as well. I mean, what do we make of that? Is that a, re is that a rejection of sectarianism or is that just a damned damn to all of you sort of uh, line? Well, my particular take on it is that um, 
if you if you look at the demography of Northern Ireland, it, it changed quite substantially at the last census in 2011, uh, where the, the middle ground, if you like, those people who don't think of themselves or no, who no longer think of themselves as purely Catholic or Protestant, that figure went in 10 years from about 5% up to about 14%. That's basically people who are... Who are uh, not necessarily mixed marriages, but people are kind of pulling out of the tribal identity, accepting Northern Irish as a kind of an identity more than Irish or British, uh, and and really not not motivated purely by the constitutional issue. So I th- I think really apart from the fact that the they have been building over quite a long time and strengthening and getting new candidates in, I, I think that's a vote of confidence in in the Alliance Party as. The only credible refuge from this kind of gigantic tribal, almost racialist crush between the two big unionist and nationalist parties. Mm. So let's talk um, about let's talk about unionism. So I mean, one of the uh, consequences of, of the vote going the way it is, I, I, the way it did, I, I think, is that the unionists have lost their majority uh, in the assembly. I think I'm right in saying that. Is that that's correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, of course, uh, as we know. That doesn't. It's not the same thing as losing your majority in the House of Commons. There is a power sharing agreement. Um, but how? So in that context, how significant is that? Then there still feels like there's quite a symbolic thing uh, at play here, where the unionists no longer control a majority of the seats. Yeah, and that control is the is the slightly misleading word in that. It's not. It's not about control because, as you quite rightly say, there there are a number of kind of power sharing checks on on both the major uh, lead parties either side. It's psychological, and actually the DUP, uh, their vote held up better than you might have expected. They only had a drop of about 1% in their vote. Um, the real significance is the psychological significance that unionism did never quite believe that nationalism could take catch it up and per- perhaps even have got ahead. Sinn Féin, in a sense, couldn't have been expected to do much better than they did, but had the DUP done even slightly worse, it would have been even Stevens or or Sinn Féin might have just got ahead by one seat. That would have been seismic. In a sense, unionism has got off with a shock, um, and, and you can expect that shock to have a certain effect on how any future reruns of this uh, election might, uh, might, might fall out. And by legislation, as things stand, they, they have only about three weeks before the Secretary of State um, has the discretion to call another election. Now, he also has the discretion to kind of uh, lengthen that, that period of negotiation to a government. Um, but in that, if another election is called fairly soon, I would imagine you'll see uh, uh, two things happening. One a further crunching of the minor Unionist Party, that's the Ulster Unionist Party, and uh, a, a, a significant increase in the turnout, particularly amongst uh, working-class Unionists, uh, to make sure that, that that doesn't happen again and try and restore something of the DUP's comfort zone. So what, so what happens to, um, to Arlene Foster now? I mean, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that it's her maladministration and scandal related to her that has led to this whole situation, yet she seems to be determined um, to hang on. Um, I think she said today, or was it yesterday, that you know, all is hunky-dory within the DUP, there's no coups or anything like that. I mean, do you believe that? Do you think her position as leader is secure? Well, I think there's two ways of answering that. I think there's a great deal of 
discontent within the, 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 the Democratic Unionist Party. They're not very comfortable with where they are. And you can be pretty sure that, that Arlene is not being done any favours by uh, her internal critics. Will they turn on her? I think the, the, the martial nature of Northern Ireland's part, uh, you know, uh, tribal politics means that it would be almost suicide for them to turn on their wounded leader in the short term. In the longer term, I'm not so sure uh, that she has a long term. The, the maladministration point, that's really, we can't really judge on that until a public inquiry, which was called before the election was called. I mean, in a sense, Sinn Féin were, uh, Sinn Féin's political genius is to call an election before the public inquiry reports and reports on any complicity they might have had in, in not necessarily the maladministration of the scheme, but certainly the, the, the wash-up operation that happened afterwards. I, I, I suspect that public inquiry will be a lot kinder to Arlene Foster as minister in her previous job than the, than the electorate has been hmm. in anticipating it. We've kind of seen her in her, uh, in her, 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 her nightgown and uh, slippers and... It, it's not impressive as a potential first minister for all of Northern Ireland. But what will happen, I think, in the short term is that both the party and wider unionism may well um, uh, corral around their wounded leader, make sure they recover the, 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 uh, as much of the position as they are able to, and, and, and perhaps in calmer waters where, where it's, it's not so hysterical as it has been, and then... Um, business may be done after that is complete. Mm. You mentioned earlier that there's this three-week window, I think, um, for, for a deal to be done on power sharing. I mean, how confident are you that a deal will be done? There seems to be a lot of pessimism around, if I'm reading the situation I, I'm rightly. not confident at all. I, I, don't think, I don't think we have... Uh, given that these are the only two parties who can do a deal, everyone else is too small uh, to be able to, to, to do it. There are only these two. Um, Sinn Féin has been careful not to lay down any red lines, although what it has said was that if the DUP had the temerity uh, to uh, nominate Arlene Foster as the next First Minister, they will not nominate for Deputy First Minister. So that's an impasse. It's not a red line, but it's their way of kind of creating an impasse. Um, and the other thing that Jerry Adams has said and it's so in, unspecific, it gives them huge carte blanche, is there will be no return to the status quo. That was repeated over and over and over again. How do they demonstrate the status quo has, has, has changed? Well, you know, two or three years in the wilderness, that people might just forget what the status quo looked like, and they might be able to come back with something that doesn't look that different, but happened quite some time ago. This is, you know, magic mirrors. The optics often... Uh, is what matters in Northern Irish politics. And it is a mark, I think, of the opposition party's failure that they have failed, in a sense, to capitalise on, on the administrative failure and the political failure of these two to create an actual government uh, and actually win something at the polls. That was Mick Filty there. Um, great to get his perspective on what happened last week in Northern Ireland. Certainly lots to chew over and there'll be more from Mick next week, uh, as I say, when we look at the uh, second half of our conversation, when we talk about the future 
uh, of Northern Ireland. But for now, we'll move on to the second part of our show, which is with, which is with me, Lawrence Antonopinski and Emma Bean, talking about the Labour Party and, and the recent polling from YouGov there, but also some reaction to today's budget as well. So I'm here with Lawrence Yantelopinski and Emma Bean. Guys, welcome to Polling Matters. Hi. So, um, Lawrence, being someone familiar with uh, Labour membership polling, I think it's fair to say, two out of two, uh, I think, uh, is the record. Um, what struck you from the, uh, the YouGov poll that's just out on Labour members? Well, aside from all of the very interesting changes year on year that we've seen from election data's previous poll and this poll, I thought what we got was a really interesting split in the membership. And you have to keep in mind that this membership that you have polled this time is by a long distance the most pro-Corbyn membership that we've seen. You have, uh, at the last leadership election about a year ago, around about 40% of the membership were members who joined after the 2015 general election. That figure now stands at nearly 70%. So Labour, the Labour membership has had two evolutions. The first was between the 2015 general election and Jeremy becoming leader, and the second has been from that time up to now. So there's been this huge change in the Labour Party, and despite this, there's been big changes. If we were just talking about the the membership in 2015, then Jeremy wouldn't win. If we were talking about even the membership after Jeremy became leader, it would be a much more competitive race. So there has been this huge change in the Labour Party, and broadly speaking, you can see that three camps have have come about. You have the always Corbyn, those who say they would definitely vote for him at the next leadership election. You have the never Corbyns, those who say they definitely wouldn't, and this group in the middle. And they roughly make up about a third in each of those three camps. And as, as you saw with Owen Smith at the last leadership election, the, the numbers were broadly the same. He got around about just over a third, I think, close to 40%. And so this, this I thought was really interesting, the fact that the membership is actually quite split. It's not a homogenous group. It's not a single group of Labour members. Because people often talk that way, don't they? They say, oh, Labour members think yes. this. And, and, and it's very clear from loads of, the, loads of the questions in this survey that actually the membership is much more nuanced. You can't consider them, you know, in the same way, and I think there's a problem in politics generally yeah. that we talk about the working class, the middle class. We tend to have these broad groups when we talk about people but the Labour membership is, is, again, is another one of those groups that you can't consider a single block. We'll get into some of the details soon, but, I mean, Emma, as someone working with Labour list, I mean, wh- yeah. what sort of, of those three groups, I mean, what sort of, uh, wh- which, what sort of group do Labour list readers tend to come from? Are they more on the pro-Jeremy uh, oh, side? Oh, that's an interesting question. Because you guys do your own surveys, don't you? I've noticed some of Yeah, that. we do. I mean... So, obviously, we don't ask, like, direct questions like, do you like Jeremy or not? Because that would be like we were trying to poke uh, the bear. But I'd say we probably are quite split. I mean, I suppose, because we're like a particular... You have to be a particular sort of Labour nerd, really, to be following Labour list closely. <laughs> I'm quite happy to say that openly. We're not for, like, say, your maybe your average member in some senses. And there was always that, like, unspoken thought people had that the more involved in Labour you were, the less likely you were to support Jeremy. Like, that was always the case. People thought of people who worked for the Labour Party or people who, um, like, certainly people who canvassed more tend to be, tended to be that little bit less pro-Jeremy. Not necessarily they wouldn't vote for him, but they, would be, they didn't have that, like, same level of support mm. for him. So I suppose from that you'd maybe assume that we were slightly less of a definitely... We had a definitely pro-Corbyn readership, but 
We definitely have like a firm mix. We definitely get, um, you know, um, our, certainly our, if we look at which of our articles and which of our comment pieces and all the rest of it are the ones that get the most clicks, get the most reactions to them, get the most reads, it will be stuff that is talking about this very issue, this fight mm. for the Labour Party, as some people call it. This whether whether we're Corbynistas, whether we're moderates, whether what you know, whether we like that phrase or not as well. You know, wh- who who is it? Where does the Labour Party go over the next like? few years up to 2020 or even longer than that and I think um, that's certainly the thing that seems to concern our readers the most mm. um, and those are the things that are generally most popular but below the line comments always a fun time on most websites I suppose oh, yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, you can't read too much into them as well it's like any any poll we do you get someone being like oh there's going to be people here in a minute saying that they're Tories for writing it and then, yeah. in, and then in no uncertain terms there will be someone calling me a Tory for having <laughs> written up a poll about you know Labour's interesting uh, career choice uh, for, for a Conservative I think, it right? would be wouldn't it wouldn't it just um, let's, let's get into some of the tell us some of these numbers i guess uh, there was three kind of themes that i identified that i wanted to talk about one was about jeremy corbyn's uh, popularity seeming to be taking a hit and what that kind of means also the circumstances that he would go in if they exist and then who might replace him so let's go through some of that because there's so much detail uh, in Mm. this uh, poll which is great so a big thanks to ian warren again uh, for, for doing this so just crudely on the broad approve disapprove um, back in February 2016, I think it was, 72% of the membership approved of Jeremy. Now it's 54% and yeah. 37% disapprove. I mm. mean, what, what do you make of some of that? Well, I'd say it's interesting because there's something almost for... If we if we think of the Labour Party as being on two sides, which is perhaps a ma- like an oversimplification because obviously there are, there are many more factions than that, but there's something almost both sides take heart from because, you know, the Corbyn-led Labour Party is going through a very hard time at the moment. It's had to go through the tumultuous time of Article 50 where it felt it had to whip the vote, which obviously, you know, would have alienated it from a lot of the sort of members who came, who were the left lean and the more left-leaning members who came to the party to vote for Jeremy tended to be very pro-Europe. So, you know, there's been a lot of things like that that, that will have harmed Jeremy necessarily, and then I think they'll take heart that like Corbyn pro Corbyn people will take heart from the fact that his popularity hasn't really taken a huge hit as a result. Not to mention the fact that anyone at the point in which they've been leader for a long time, your popularity is get gets hit as a result just of that, right? You know, I I, I think there's something for them to take heart from, but also that you know that 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 disapproval figure has increased means that there's something for the quote other side if that other side is homogenous to take to take heart from as well right because mm. they can say well look he is getting less popular and i suppose the people who go for the theory of we shouldn't have another coup we should let them do it themselves then again this waiting and watching and sitting back theory is perhaps supported by this increasing disapproval of Corbyn. Now, whether that bears out in reality that, you know, people being dissatisfied with Corbyn means they necessarily vote against him were a leadership about to come yeah. about, you know, well, obviously we don't know for certain, but it, but it's, it's definitely, there's something there for, like, both sides to, to feel potentially heartened. I was by. looking at um, some of the numbers, and one of the questions was, um, I'll bring you back in here, Lawrence, was around um, would you vote for Jeremy again, basically, if there was another Labour leadership election and Jeremy Corbyn was on the ballot, how likely, if at all, is it that you would vote for Jeremy Corbyn? And uh, definitely 36, probably would uh, probably would vote for him, but might vote for someone else, 16. I would probably not vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but might vote for him, 11. And then definitely not 35, which I guess is that third that you were, you were sort of talking about. One thing that struck me was that 11% um, that said they probably wouldn't vote for him but might. If there was another coup, then you can see how they might sort of rally behind uh, behind their original man, can't you? And then that brings 
Um, the number that would probably or definitely vote for him in any circumstances is 63%, which isn't actually that far off you know, what he got last time. I mean, it feels to me like there's no real circumstances in which Jeremy himself can lose a leadership election. Would you agree with that? I, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far. Um, but I think, I think you're, you're, you're exactly right in terms of that, that group in the middle. I think they are people who predominantly join the Labour Party in this wave of optimism that swept the left when Jeremy was standing and then when he became leader. You know, the vast majority of those people who are probably and probably not Jeremy are people who have joined uh, either whilst he was in the race or once he was already the leader. So they want to be swept up in this. They want to be part of a movement. They want to be part of something bigger. And Jeremy is the symbol of that. Now, whereas the definitely vote for Jeremy people are very much wrapped up in the cult of Corbyn. They, it's Jeremy or nobody for these guys, uh, unless Jeremy decided to step down and anoint a successor where they would go almost to the last person for the person who Jeremy told them to go for. But those people are still very much in the cult of Corbyn. The other group in the middle, whilst they're not sold on Jeremy, they are sold on the ideas of Jeremy. And that's not necessarily a left or a right thing. Yeah. That's more of a, more of a I want to be part of something that campaigns that you know that they can really believe in. So I think any any candidate would need to to symbolise this and embody that kind of optimism and passion that that Jeremy, whilst maybe you wouldn't necessarily say he's you know the most charismatic of leaders, he still was able to instil that in people and bring them along with him. So I think the next the next leader, if it's seen as you know a fix or a stitch up, trying to get Jeremy, then those people, I'm sure you're right, they're all going to flock back towards him, partly due to you know you know people root for the underdog, and I think yeah. lots of these members would would go back to him and say, I, I don't like the way this has been done. So I think I think I think that there is a case to be made that Jeremy could be defeated. But the conditions under which that comes about are are almost more important than the candidate who stands. Yeah, I think they're almost like, like you saying almost like the, the, this this energy, almost like this principled energy, campaigning energy. That almost that that notion, though, if if that's what the thing that motivates some of those like strong, more strongly Corbyn supporters or like the sort of Corbyn supporters, that that's not necessarily a right as far as it exists in the Labour Party or left thing. That's just a. Mm. Seem to be of a very principled line, seem to be pushed forward an agenda, all the rest of it, which I think seemed to be what people, particularly in the 2015 leadership race, seemed to sort of rally behind was this, you know, new way of doing politics, new way of doing all the rest of it. It, 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 it tends towards the left of the Labour Party, that, but it doesn't, it might not necessarily need to be. I don't know. But... Trying, I must admit, though, I'm trying to imagine what these circumstances are that don't feel like a coup. Like surely there is, is there any scenario where Jeremy himself, like where the membership, get the you know, as a whole says, yeah, that's actually that that circumstance is fine to challenge him. Well, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I think maybe maybe Europe could be it, right? That 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 could be the hill that. That, that Jeremy is not able able to get over. If Europe Wasn't starts last to, summer, well, no, but if it gets, starts to go really, really tits up, like you know, that could be the thing, maybe. But again, what 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 thing would it be like? Because that's actually quite a prolonged process. And mm. if it didn't do it last summer, you know, I think at the minute, I I think 
the reason you're struggling to see where that may happen is because at the minute it doesn't exist. The only way to get rid of Jeremy is another coup, another, you know, bloody battle to try and win the Labour Party. But I do think that there are there are kernels within this survey where you can see perhaps where that may spring up from. Those conditions may come about. Uh, it's always difficult with hypothetical questions. Yeah. You know, do you think Jeremy should stay on if this hypothetical thing mm, happens? Nobody yeah. actually can say for certain how they're going to feel if an event comes to pass. They can only really take a guess at it. But I think that there were some really interesting, um, some really interesting uh, differences there and some some ways that Jeremy might uh, come into trouble. So 55% said he should stand down um, if he loses the support of union leaders. Obviously got Len McCluskey, uh, Lona... Say his name, which is ironic given my name. Uh, but <laughs> we've got Len McCluskey's leadership election coming up. He may change tack or um, he may be defeated. And so, using the support of union bosses, 55% say stand down. If he loses support of the shadow cabinet, and obviously his shadow cabinet is now very much stocked with his acolytes. And, mm. you know, I think the shadow cabinet in the 2016 election were people who were like, I'm going to give him a chance. So it was easy for them to turn, to turn on him. But a majority still say that he should go if the shadow cabinet goes against him. If he loses the next general election, obviously most mm. people in Labour don't want it to get that far. But it was, I mean, I don't know, is it heartening to see 68% of people think he should stand down if Labour loses <laughs> the next general election? Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but even still, a plurality say he should stand down if they fall 20 points behind the Tories. It's 47%. 46% if Labour forms poorly at the local and regional ele- elections. The only one actually where more people thought Jeremy should carry on than stand down was if he loses support of Tom Watson. But I, I guess you'd probably say he's already well, lost yeah, the support. yeah, that ship has sailed. Um, so, so, yes, I think that there, there are conditions that won't feel like a coup. But I think the crucial thing here is really the subthought doctrine. Let Jeremy be Jeremy. Let him fail on his own time. Despite this membership being the most favourable possible membership that it could be for Jeremy Corbyn, his ratings have taken a hammering. So we're actually, when we're comparing ratings from a year ago to now, we're not really comparing apples with apples. It's not quite oranges and apples, but it's yeah. you know, it's a very mm. different apple. It's <laughs> the point I'm making here. It's a very different apples that we're comparing. Maybe a gala and a, a red. We, we like degrees of fruit in pop and polling oh, yeah. matters. It's very good. What do you think, Evan? Well, I think this is the this is the thing, isn't it? The, the 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 idea is that the PLP have now decided that they're not going to do any cooing any cooing, which obviously is now a verb that I've made. I don't think they're ever cooing over Jeremy. No. (laughs) No, like, the the coup isn't going to come from the moderates or the right or the Blairites or however you want to call them. It's, they are sitting back, like you say, it's the letting Jeremy be Jeremy theory. It's they are sitting back. And also, though, is there the evidence to suggest that maybe on the left of the party there's the beginning of manoeuvring? And... There certainly is some evidence to suggest that perhaps there is. There perhaps is this starting to think about succession planning, starting to think about who might be the next person. And as well, the manoeuvring from individuals. Like, I think, you know, the way in which Clive Lewis went about the Article 50 stuff made a lot of people think, is he, you know, because he may, you know, maximise a lot of publicity around himself in a way that's, you know, perfectly legitimate for him to do. And I don't, and, and, and you know, obviously he had a dilemma there of which mm. way to vote on Article 50. He, he had that conflict in, of loyalty to leadership slash also his constituency. That must have been a dilemma. But there were a lot of people who are now starting to think who is looking like the next Labour leader 
And there's a, certainly a good amount of manoeuvring from sort of that wing of the party that seems to be that sort of conversation. Like John McDonnell, for instance, tweeting out quite explicitly about Rebecca Long Bailey, mm. the next generation of socialist leadership. That's a direct quote of a tweet. He's not saying that if he doesn't think it, right? He's doing that completely in the public domain. Well, let's look at some of those numbers because one of the things the poll did, I mean, it looked at the hypothetical, I don't know if you can call it a ballot really, but a list of potential candidates Mm. with Jeremy Corbyn on the ballot and without him. And I I want to look at the one without him on the ballot because I think as we talked about, it's quite hard to see him losing in a challenged race. But maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. And uh, I was looking at the one um, who people would vote for without him on the ballot. Now, we should say that there's a long list of candidates uh, put, put to the membership in the poll. That's, you know, there's not going to be 15 candidates sure. on the ballot, right? But it can still give us a good indication of what the membership is thinking. Now, John McDonnell, I think, topped the ballot with 18 uh, percent among all the membership. No, um, he did rule himself out of the weekend, I will always say that. Yes, <laughs> and that is still significantly less than Jeremy Corbyn mm. would get in that same scenario. So Jeremy Corbyn would get 38% if he was on the ballot. So this isn't a case of Corbyn's support going directly to McDonnell. Mm. Clive Lewis in second with 12, Chukraman a 10, Yvette Cooper 10, Keir Starmer 9, Hilary Byrne 9, Dan Jarvis 7, Emily Thornberry 6, then it goes on from there. But one of the things I thought was interesting was the um, some of the splits, again, going back to those three groups that Lawrence mentioned earlier. So among those that would definitely vote for Jeremy... Um, 46% going for John McDonnell. The next one down is actually Emily Thornberry with 11, although in reality it starts becoming around the sort of single digits. Um, Angela Rayner, 9, Clive Lewis, 8. So you can sort of see where that's going. And obviously if John McDonnell wasn't there, curious to see uh, who would take his mantle uh, as the sort of uh, successor to Corbyn, if you like. There's the swings in the middle. Clive Lewis, 25%, um, very much head and shoulders above everybody else. No one else makes uh, double digits, so I think we can sort of leave that one there. Um, and amongst some of those that would definitely not vote for Jeremy, so the, I don't know, the moderates or the Blairites or whatever you want to call them, um, there wasn't really one candidate. So Yvette Cooper comes top of 19, uh, Chukraman has 17, Keir Starmer 16, Hilary Benn 14, and Dan Jarvis 14. So no obvious, no obvious candidate there. Um, but what struck me as well was that if you crudely divide these candidates into pro and anti Corbyn, and that's a very subjective, very crude thing to do, there was no obvious uh, Corbynite majority among the membership. So I guess one, two things strike me here. Um, one is that I don't know whether a Corbynism is the thing within the Labour Party so much as support for Jeremy Corbyn the man. But yeah. I think beyond that, um, Clive Lewis doesn't seem to have a base on either side of the... Um, the divide, if you like, or the, around Jeremy, but has that kind of swing vote. Does that mean he doesn't have a, pe- a base in the party? Or does that mean he can be that consensus kind of unified candidate? Uh, I mean, it could mean both. And I think, obviously, all, all of the sort of like very hypothetical polling is, you know, particularly when we're talking about names he might not be as well known, can get a little bit harder to read directly, to take too many strong conclusions from it. I think Clive probably has that ability to to seem less strongly of one side or another. Um, and, and I think perhaps it does suggest that a bit. But I, I, I think as much as anything, it's just I think it just says quite clearly that I, I, I personally, I think as well, particularly on the anyone but Corbyn side, that there's no strong candidate there that ne- necessarily stands head and shoulders above the rest. There's a lot of people. And also, I think as well, I think because of the fact that those people 
that that third that you talk about, Lawrence, the anyone but Corbyn, because they unify around the anyone but Corbyn, they're not then unified at all about who mm. they want within that. And actually, I'd, I'd say that within that, there's a lot of the traditional Labour factions who actually then might well, ideally want to see quite different people be leader. Because I think the the grouping, that third, third, third grouping that, we, that you're describing amongst the membership is not reflected in the PLP, right? The PLP are, mm. well... 80, 81% for the third that's anyone but Corbyn. I think it's probably fair to say, considering that's how many voted against him in the no-confidence ballot last summer. So, you know, if if we're talking about who the possible candidates are that would serve necessarily that one-third's interest, there's a lot. There's a lot of people who are in that, potentially. My, my hunch there is that I look at some of those numbers and I think Chukarumana looks reasonably well-placed. You can never know in the heat of a mm. campaign... You know, will they get defined as the progress yeah, player right yeah, candidate sure. for argument, which obviously puts not criticising progress at all, but, but no, it criticises. You know, they 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 evoke certain feelings among certain groups of the membership. Yeah, exactly. But he feels like a sort of pro-European, authentic pro-European voice that has a reasonable degree of popularity amongst. Yeah. Even anecdotally, some Corbynites you'll speak to seem to quite like him, which feels a bit odd. But I think I, I, I know. I think I think look at yeah, whoever comes in. Against if it's against Jeremy, it's a completely different race. If mm. they're coming in more broadly in a in a you know a moderate versus a left mm. thing, then I think it's a much more interesting dynamic and an yeah. interesting race. I think you're right with Chucker that he's he's well placed. He's also well known, which I think will help. Um, and his role with Vote Leave Watch and all those you know his pro-European oh, stance yeah, it him gives there. him a platform to recruit, and that is what the Labour moderates really need to consider right now is the membership is one battle but Jeremy, his lead amongst um, registered supporters and affiliates was about 70,000 so just basing it on the third third, third grouping that I've crudely mm. divided the membership into thus far if you need to overturn a 70,000 deficit at the next leadership election due to registered supporters and union affiliates you're going to need to win about 80% of those swing voters. So it's really crucial for any candidate to think about recruiting. And one of the issues that can help you recruit, I think it was, was it 4 million people signed a petition to hold a second referendum? Mm -hmm. These are passionate pro-Europeans who were aghast at the uh, EU referendum. Chucker had a big role in the Remain campaign. He's continued that. Um, so I think that is a rich scene to, to bring in new members. But I will say on this that actually Europe is, isn't the only thing. Because, you know, Owen Smith was an yeah. incredible pro-European. Didn't do a blind bit of good mm-hmm. in, the, in the actual leadership election. I mean, a lot of that could have been due to the candidate and the campaign that was run. Um, although I think they actually probably got pretty close to what they could, what they could do yeah. at the time. But still... It, you need to have something else, and you, and I'll, I'll sound like a stuck record, but uh, go back to any candidate, whoever it is, whichever one of these guys um, stands, they really need to 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 be passionate yeah. about, and to less that they need to be passionate, but the the members need to passionately believe in them. Mm. Um, and that that's that's going to be the crucial thing to win this. I feel like an elephant in the room as well is on this sort of discussion. The McDonnell Amendment hasn't passed. There's nothing to say that it necessarily will, but also nothing to say that it necessarily won't at conference. 
if if a candidate still needs to get the number of nominations that Jeremy needed to get in 2015 to even make it to a leadership ballot, I don't think he'll stand down. Then <laughs> I think if if I think I, and I think Owen Jones was was completely right in his article. I think it was last week mm-hmm. um, where he spoke of the need for compromise from both the Corbynites and the moderates because my I. I I can't see a reason why John McDonnell would give up control of the party. And I can't see Jeremy going unless they have... And I could be wrong. Maybe, yeah. I, maybe I'm wrong. But I cannot see them deciding to, to, to relinquish their well, leadership. As you mentioned, the uh, Shadow Chancellor, let's uh, spend the last couple of minutes um, talking about uh, the budget today. Of course, uh, you know, not, not something we can avoid. Um, I mean, Emma, what was your uh, perspective on some of this? I mean, like for, for me, I'm looking at it from a sort of polling perspective. I guess there's a few bits of data out. One was from Sky Data, which suggested that um, would you support or oppose ending austerity and increasing government spending? Support 49, uh, oppose 27. But at the same time, when you ask people who they uh, trust on the, the economy itself, yeah. May and Hammond 43, <laughs> Corbyn and McDonald 12. So, I mean, I know that we, we, we're getting the sort of um, first signs of Okay, tax rises for national insurance for sure. certain self-employed people. Mm. Growth forecast not as bad for uh, 2016 as it as it was originally predicted, but being downgraded for the future. Debt rising, but predicted to fall in the future. We've heard that before. So, I mean, you know, really outside the Westminster bubble, is there a lot going on today? I I think I think I think you know you've got to give credit to the Tories and the budget they've presented today, and it is one of those ones where it'll go over and not affect the vast majority of people outside of our little weird bubbles. Like, I, I think they've, they've actually managed it very sensibly. And there's not a fat lot in it. There's a couple of talking points around, like, national insurance. And what else is there? Inheritance tax, which I suppose can go into that broad brushstroke, evil Tories doing bad things again. Two billion but, extra for care as well, I should mention. Yeah, but, I mean, which is an insufficient, but it sounds good. But, it, it, you know, it's actually the, the funding deficit there is in care. It needed two billion right now, and this two billion isn't for right now. It's to be spread over several years. So it's not good enough, but it's, it's you know, th- there aren't that many talking about points coming out of it, except for to point out that the Tories have done a good job of making the talking points be minimal, almost. I, I think from a Labour perspective, these sorts of numbers are interesting, because obviously they suggest that an anti-austerity platform could be popular, but they also suggest that there's something fundamental almost about, like, um, that you know, the leadership for some reason aren't getting cut through, and that, that's, that's a much bigger problem. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. Um, Lawrence, a final word to, to you. Um, so you've obviously spent a lot of time looking at post-budget polling and what, what happens. I mean, how likely is it that, uh, that the budget today is going to have impacted what the voting intention polls will say in the coming months? Well, I think when it comes to budget polling, um, people often assume that they either have no difference or that they can really help a government, and they absolutely cannot help a government. The, the only thing a government can try to do when it releases a budget is avoid an omni-shambles, as we saw before. That's the best example of a budget going wrong. So you want your budget to be boring, you don't want there to be too much in there. You don't want to essentially piss people off. And uh, the early indications are that they have probably got away with a lot of this. I think the national insurance stuff, I mean, it's always a risk um, putting an additional tax on lobby journalists um, because <laughs> you, you, it was very noticeable on Twitter how the freelance journalists I followed um, were reacting to the to that. I mean, I decided to become a freelancer a couple of weeks ago, so I chose 
that my timing there perfectly as well. <laughs> He's uh, available for work, folks. I am available for work, so please, uh, Kieran's got my email, do let me know. Um, but yeah, so really, what you're trying to do with the budget is avoid a catastrophe. But you very, very rarely will you see a government increase its voting intention share after a budget. The only way is down, and so you want it to be boring. You don't want people to react negatively. And essentially, if it's a budget that nobody notices, then Hammond may have done their jobs perfectly. Mm. I guess when they're 16 points ahead, there's plenty of fat in their voting intention to uh, to cut into. Uh, but that's all we've got time for uh, for this week's uh, politicalbetting.com Polly Matters show. Big thanks to my guests, Emma Bean, Lawrence Yantelopinski. Um I'm sure we'll be having both of you back in the future. Um, but if you do uh, like what you hear and want to support the show, then please uh, do share our episodes on social media. Like our Facebook page, or as I said at the beginning, just uh, tell a friend about us. But if you really like what you hear, why not vote for us in the British Podcast Awards? Just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote search for polling matters we're the one with the graph not the american one by frank newport and give us uh, your vote in the listeners choice awards takes 30 seconds shortlisted podcasts will appear, appear on the guardian website which can only help our audience and would uh, really help the show out so we'd very much appreciate that but for now uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned next week for some more on scotland and the second half of my uh, chat with mick fealty from earlier today <laughs>